You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day. Stay at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Michael, have you got a minute? It's tragedy and jubilation for Ferrari. But the hills are alive with the sound of happy monocast noises. The bulls were at home, but it was the horses that romped onto victory. What does Alonso have to do to get some luck, man? And it's lights out and away we go. Max Verstappen gets away well from Charles Leclerc and already George Russell is alongside Carlos Sainz. And on the inside goes George Russell and Sergio Perez and they touch and Perez is spun round. George Russell has got a five second penalty for causing that collision. Nothing I could do. Yep. You can see that Mick Schumacher ahead now of Lewis Hamilton up in the seventh place. Down the inside, goes Charles Leclerc on Max Verstappen. But is Mick Schumacher starting to struggle on his tyres a bit, and is Hamilton trying to dive down the inside? Kevin Magnussen now gets past Fernando Alonso. Charles Leclerc, 12 laps, fresher rubber. He comes out behind Verstappen. Oh, and off goes Sebastian Vettel for the second time this weekend. Red Bull just haven't had an answer to the Ferrari pace. And look how easy it is for Charles Leclerc to get up to the back of that Red Bull. Leclerc goes for the old switcheroo, forces Verstappen to go a bit wide on the exit, and then he is through on the inside. The engine's gone for Carlos Sainz. And whilst he was looking at an overtake on Max Verstappen, he has been undone. Charles Leclerc started second in the race today. He takes victory! Hello, I'm Shannon Mabry, your host of the Race Directors Podcast, and I am joined by the soon-to-be blue-flagged backmarkers, F1 journalist Ed Spencer and serial podcaster Joe Spagnoli, and of course, mysterious F1 Twitter menace, unpaid intern. So, chaps, we've been in Austria. So, we are without producer Royfield this week, so if the podcast does descend into chaos today, that is the reason why. And producer Royfield, we do apologise for all of the editing that you're going to have to do. But, gents, I'm assuming everyone watched the race at the weekend. Ed, did you enjoy it? I thought it was a pretty good race. It was a, a nice battle between Charles and Max. There was a little bit of a plateau period midpoint, but yeah, I thought it was a fairly good race. And arguably in the top five best races we've had this year. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. Obviously, you know, it's a big win for Leclerc considering that, you know, he needed 25 points and he got it against arguably the one who was going in with a bit of a home field advantage. 
with uh, against Verstappen. But again, Ferrari going to have to get to work on Science's car, which is a little bit crispy after this weekend. Yeah, I'm not sure I want that bill, to be honest. That did not look like a very healthy car by the time that fire was put out. In turn, did you enjoy the race? I think it was good. I thought it was pretty entertaining from start to finish. Obviously, F1 races have that little midpoint in them where things kind of die down. But overall, the race was very fun. I thought it was very entertaining from lap one. Most part, all the way down to lap 71, especially at the end with the safety. Well, not the safety car, but the virtual safety car. And Leclerc and Max having that one more mad dash at the finish. I thought it was just what F1 needed. And a Leclerc victory is good because it will help out with overall morale at Ferrari as well as the title battle, even though if you look at it, Leclerc didn't really gain that much on Max. But a win is a win. And we'll just see what the teams do going into France. Very true, very true. Because we have now officially reached the halfway point. Mr. Spagnoli. Did you enjoy the race? I thought it was fairly decent. There was there was the threat right from the beginning, and especially after some of the really boring support races that we had over the weekend, that the penalty situation, the amount of five-second impediments that were being passed down would have spoiled the race. But no, like the other guys, I found it plenty enjoyable. It's very rare that you'll see a five-car battle going up a straight and then into another four, including four completely different car models um, and rookie drivers, experienced ones. That was a nice little moment, even though it kind of petered out pretty quickly. But yeah, we had a legitimate race for the win, split strategies, nice weather, pretty good afternoon, all things told. Not as good as Silverstone, but then again, basically nothing will be this year. Very true. Silverstone did set the bar extremely high. But let's talk about that little five-way battle, actually, guys, because I really enjoyed that. And I think that is kind of the point, I guess, of what these new regs were trying to achieve. They were trying to bring us closer racing. And seeing those five cars, as Joe mentioned, most of which very different in that little five-way battle, was, I thought, quite exhilarating and quite exciting and a little bit unexpected, to be honest, and I think the standout probably performance, I know Intern's going to disagree with me here, but the standout performance um, of that little group of the weekend, I think was Mick Schumacher doing extremely well, all things considered, after having a pretty shocking start to his career, to be honest. We've been waiting a very long time for him to score some points. Um, and he finished very well. And it was nice to see him get to battle with some of these drivers that he hasn't had the chance to battle with previously. In turn, I know you don't think he deserved driver of the day, but do you think that he did really nothing all weekend? I thought it was quite exciting to see him up where he was. Well, definitely not all weekend, but the sprint was definitely more to me than the race. I don't think he deserved driver of the day of the race, but I did tweet after the sprint that that was the best driving I'd ever seen from him so far in Formula One because it was, you know. I thought his defense against Lewis was... Very much sure. I, I expected him to just get caught off guard immediately and just lose it within like two laps of battling him. But he, he stayed in front of him for the most part. The race was also pretty fine. He he did beat Kevin. Granted, Magnussen did have an engine issue that he, he would later say he had in post-race. He was like, yeah, had an engine issue. Was praying that the car didn't blow up and it didn't. So it's it somewhat taints the head-to-head victory. But it's still a victory nonetheless. And back-to-back points finishes for a guy who 
two races ago never scored a point is is good for him. I don't think it's driver of the day or anything, but it's still it's still comforting to see that he's getting more and more the hang of being up in the midfield. And who was your driver of the day? My driver of the day was Fernando Alonso. How could it not be? Once again, man, dead last to points. Well, I shouldn't say dead last because Bottas started in the pit lane, but he was last on the grid and he still put that car in the points on the last lap. And it's it's very weird because I still don't know what happened. He pit under VSC and he, w- he would have come... F- I think he came out like ninth and then went back in. Something happened when he pit under the VSC and he lost a lot of spots. And despite losing all of those spots, he still kicked into high gear. He got Bottas on the last lap and he scored a point after everything that happened to him that weekend. So I think Alonso is driver of the day, for me at least. Norris is also a good shout. I can back that. I can back that. Mr. Spencer, while we're on the subject, driver of the day. I would have said I would have agreed with the fans for once. I think Mick Schumacher drove fantastically well. The sprint was good. The race was good. All in all, a very, very good weekend from young Schumacher. And it really seems that that Silverstone result has given him the, the confidence that he can really push this car and get those points that he needs. Bearing in mind, coming into Silverstone, there was all this talk rambling on that, oh, he's going to get replaced, he's going to get fired, blah, blah, blah. I think he's fairly silenced now. He just needs to keep this momentum up, keep going. And yeah, I think he will be confirmed for next year at least. And then who knows what might happen. But yeah, probably Schumacher's best weekend in Formula One and arguably a crucial one for Haas because it puts him back in the fight for fourth in the Constructors' Championships with McLaren struggling and Alpine having their technical foibles. Good points. Well made, as always. And Mr. Spagnoli, driver of the day. Uh, I prefer to do driver of the whole weekend rather than just driver of the day because I think ignoring both the sprint and qualifying on this, it just doesn't sit right with me. Esteban Ocon, it's more or less ring-fenced for me. He had what looked like a very Leclerc 2020 performance, qualifies the car well, stays out of trouble, finishes best of the rest. I was always, I seemingly always impressed when I saw just how high he was in the timing column. Yeah, Esteban Ocon for me, it wasn't actually that close. I agree, actually, and I I, I agree that driver of the day maybe should be judged on the whole weekend, um, like both you and Intern said. I, with that in mind, would also go for Mick Schumacher, though, mainly because it's a very recent uptick in performance for him. And I think we've seen Ocon be great. But when I compare Mick Schumacher in comparison, you know, having not scored points for so long and then to have back-to-back points weekends, I think is very exciting. And I love that for him. So for me, that would make him my driver of the weekend. But... Let's talk about someone else. Let's talk about the McLarens. A seeming somewhat of a recovery uh, for Daniel Ricciardo finishing in the points in ninth place. Lando Norris in seventh. It does seem to be picking up a little bit for them. Obviously, their main competitors at the moment in the constructors are Alpine, who they are now dead level with. Uh, Fun times for both. Fun times for all involved. But I do feel like after... It's been a bit of a roller coaster of a season, to be honest, for them. And seeing them finish in seventh and ninth like that and Daniel Ricciardo not be in a depressingly low spot was nice to see, don't you think, Mr. Spencer? Definitely. I think coming into Saturday, Sunday, it was looking pretty grim for McLaren. Norris had been struggling. Ricciardo had not been there. But it was a good result of being considered. So seventh and ninth is not really what they want, but they'll take it considering that, again, 
they probably had the sixth, seventh fastest car this weekend. And for Ricardo, it's his first point since Baku. So he'll be pleased with that. He'll, it gives him a little bit of confidence back, although the recent news of Alex Pillow being signed for McLaren Racing is a bit of a worry. But yeah, I thought it was an okay weekend. But obviously, that car is just not really delivering the goods. Very true, very true. I think it's probably time that we talk about Ferrari, specifically Carlos Sainz and that crash and how nasty that looked um, and the marshal's response because I know that that's caught a lot of flack on the internet over the weekend. As I always do when I start talking about Ferrari, I'm going to come to Mr. Spagnoli about this, Joe, our resident Italian. Um not really a good weekend for Carlos Sainz at all. I'm beginning to think he's cursed. Ferrari have an incredible habit of snatching defeat from the hands of certain victory, and it's very historical. Um, at this track, I was doing a bit of research. Before Charles Leclerc won this year, the last time Ferrari won at Austria was 2003, which I'm basically running off the assumption that those team order shenanigans that they pulled with Barrichello the year before has basically cursed them forever after. And sure, it didn't take out Leclerc this time, but if the race had been four laps longer, it could well have done because he had some pretty major mechanical problems, the pedal literally falling apart, having to downshift differently, lift and coast more than you could believe. He held on for the lead, but ultimately... You know, that should have been a one-two for Ferrari. It should have been a massive swing against Red Bull, so all things considered in the constructors. But again, the car goes up in smoke. And in the case of that Marshall, that's one of those those momentary lapses that is going to cost Ferrari millions. The amount of components that could have taken out, just considering just how quickly that fire spread. And the fact that watching the video, the car seemed to explode twice within the engine bay over the course of a couple seconds. Not great. The only defence, I suppose, is the elevation. The car could have rolled back onto the track. But people saying that Sainz should have put it in the gravel trap, that makes extricating the car from the track a whole lot harder. And the last thing they wanted to do was pull a full safety car when Leclerc's got a functional lead on Max. So, yeah, not not great. Not a great decision from the uh, the marshal. I can't imagine the 3.1% cost cap expansion is going to help Ferrari too much. Yeah, and that's four reliability issues for Ferrari this season. Not going well. Yeah, it seems like Red Bull were really struggling at the beginning of the season and now Ferrari are just trying to catch up with engine failures and they are very much succeeding there. Uh, Let's talk about Mercedes for a little bit because it was a really, really, really good finish for them. Um, Hamilton back on the podium again and Russell in fourth. Um, If you don't count his DNF, I suppose he's continuing his top five finishes for the season, but personally I count the DNF. <laughs> I can see Joe shaking his head. Yeah, we count the DNF, but nonetheless, this week cracking finish, and it does seem that they had a little bit of pace, and the drivers just generally seem to do really, really well, which I thought was really exciting for them. In turn, how do you feel about Mercedes' performance this weekend? It looked pretty bloody good to me. Oh yeah, they cooked, man. I mean. Obviously, we, we, we all saw it happen in qualifying with both of them putting it in the wall, both of them crashing out, which is something... First, you never see Hamilton crash in qualifying. That's something that hasn't happened since, I want to say, Brazil 2017. It's been a very good while since Lewis Hamilton crashed out of a qualifying session where it happened. It happened last weekend, and then Russell was the only remaining Mercedes, and he binned it as well, and it was kind of like, oh, what's going on here? This, is, this isn't safe. So, 
luckily for Russell, he set a good enough lap before his crash, so he could have started the sprint still in fifth place. Hamilton had to start down in P9, and Hamilton got held up by Mick Schumacher for quite a while in the sprint. Russell comfortably drove to fourth. Then the race comes. Russell hits Perez, damages his front wing. He has to go straight to the back. Hamilton, I guess, gets himself up into P3, stays there for the remainder of the race. Russell does a great drive from the back of the pack all the way back to P4. And you started the weekend with both of them crashing out in Q3, and you ended it with them in third and fourth. And I think that's literally given Red Bull and Ferrari are that much clear of them because they don't have a race-winning car at all by any means. I think Silverstone was probably the only time they showed race-winning pace. But even despite that, they still got one best possible result they could have out of this weekend. So wonderful recovery by Mercedes in my Yeah, it does kind of seem like Russell punted Perez out of the race and then magically absorbed his ability to pick his way through the pack back to the front because that's something that I always think of Perez as being an absolute master at. He can start at the end and end up on the podium or even win the race from, you know, back of the grid. So I think he somehow managed to absorb that ability uh, when he punted him, much to Perez's dismay, obviously. But now, gents, it is time to take a journey down Gossip Grid. Welcome to Gossip Grid, the part of the podcast where I impart unto you, dear listeners, the latest whispers flying around the paddock. Daniel Ricciardo has hit back at rumours that he'll be losing his seat at the end of 2022, with a strongly worded statement confirming his commitment to the team until his contract actually ends at the end of 2023. But some people are still not ready to let it go. With McLaren's signing of IndyCar star Alex Pillow coming in the same week, much to the confusion of Chip Ganassi Racing, there are still whispers floating around that McLaren will move Daniel to a different category, such as IndyCar or Formula E. With speculation on the Australian driver's future still rife, even after he's attempted to clarify it, are the gossipers onto something, or is it simply time to close these rumour mills down and let him get on with his season? And another update in the ongoing Kyalami saga this week, with sources claiming that the announcement is coming this week that a deal has been signed to bring the much-loved Grand Prix back after a long hiatus. However, in the same week, rumours are also flying that Spa is on the chopping block, much to the dismay of many F1 fans. This would certainly be bittersweet news, if so. That's all the gossip I have for you this week, dear listeners, but rest assured, my ears are always open. So let's talk Danny Rick, because I feel like he's having a little bit of a hard time of it at the moment, more so than maybe is necessary, um, because people still won't leave it alone. Even after his statement, I have been seeing nonstop chatter that he wasn't specific enough in his statement in as kind of in respect to talking about Formula One specifically. Um, And people are saying, oh, they're just going to move him to a different series. They're going to move him to Indy. They're going to move him to Formula E. He's not staying in F1 past the end of this season. And I'm kind of thinking that we need to just leave the man alone and let him get on with it. I feel like he's clarified it enough, no, in turn? Well, it's it's an interesting situation, definitely, because, you know, we, we know the results aren't there. And at least in my opinion, Ricardo has to play at least some role in, in his performance not being up to par. I mean, you can only blame the car for so long before you look back at it and you realize, all right, maybe maybe... 
you're just not gelling well with the team. Maybe you're just not that guy anymore. You know, it's, it's a very interesting situation. But at the same time, it's, again, it is very weird because there's so many people that are like, so many names, you know. I, I don't think I've ever heard this many names for a seat like this before. You have people like Albon being rumored, people like Vettel being rumored, Herta or Ward. Now we have Palo in the mix. It's like anyone, anyone could be in that McLaren at this rate. But I don't know. I haven't seen a seat cause this much, this much commotion in a good while, man. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the Alex Palo stuff, but that's probably more an IndyCar issue than an F1 issue anyways. But yeah, man, a lot of stuff's going on over at McLaren right now. I, I don't even know what to say. Well, Zach Brown, I think, said, I, it might not have been this week, it might have been last week, that they've had discussions about his performance and it's not up to par, <laughs> but also that they need to provide a car that's good enough and right now the car in general isn't good enough for probably both drivers so I think if the team themselves acknowledge that you know his performance isn't there or where quite where it should be but also the car isn't where it should be kind of feels like there's probably work to be done on both sides don't you think Joe? Much like with Mercedes, I'd be very surprised if McLaren iterated upon this car for next year. It looks like there's some fairly fundamental problems with it. And in straight line speed, it is, I'll say it right now, definitely the worst car in the field overall. Maybe the aero is well developed, but in a straight line, it is absolutely terrible. But on Daniel Ricciardo's end, I, I don't know why anybody is surprised about this. It's been known for some time that Daniel Ricciardo has the control of that third year option in his contract. McLaren don't. It's just indicative yet again of the sheer amount of hype he had before 2021 started. And I guarantee you that any team, with the exception of Mercedes, Red Bull and Ferrari that signed him, would have had the same thing. Give the driver the choice on the final year of his contract on the assumption that a better team may well make him an offer so he can choose his own destiny. It's another sign of just how far Daniel Ricciardo has fallen short of expectations. But you can complain about the car all you like. He's not the one that's being screwed out of high points finishes by it. It's clearly Lando Norris. Sure, the car may be a few tenths off the pace, relatively speaking, to where it was last year. But Daniel Ricciardo is more than a few tenths off the pace of Lando Norris on many occasions. Very true. Very, very, very true. And I agree. I think Lando is probably the one suffering more in that respect because I feel like he has that capability of of fighting for podiums rather than fighting for lower points places. Uh, so that's been pretty abysmal to watch, to be honest. But Ed, what are your thoughts on the matter? I think the whole Ricardo saga is it's interesting to watch because I've seen screenshots of the radio communication between him and Tom Stallard and he's not been informed until quite late in the race. There's almost very little communication between the pit wall and Ricardo himself. So if he's got no idea what's going on, how the hell is he supposed to get good results out of it? And at the end of the day, he decides his face, whether he wants to continue at the end of the year or not. 2023, it's Zach Brown's. But for now, it's in his hands. And there's no indication for me that he wants to retire yet. I think in 2023, it's going to be a difficult situation with him, with the fact we've got Polo potentially coming over, we've potentially got Award, Herter, even Pierre Gasly, who is on the market at the end of 2023. But I would agree with the assessment. I think both drivers are not getting the results they deserve because the car is just simply not good enough. Even 
Norris. Norris very rarely complains, but there was an onboard shot of him flipping the steering wheel off. That's not somewhat, that's not giving me an impression that he's happy with what he's driving. He's clearly trying to get the maximum, as is Ricardo, but neither of them can't. It's just not, it's just not a particularly amazing car and they have to deal with it. And with the fact they've also stopped upgrade, upgrading it for a time being, it's going to be tricky for them. So it's, it's a double-edged sword, I would say, for Ricardo and McLaren. Gasly, yet another name to add to the list that Intern's already given us of names that are potentially rumoured, possibly, maybe, in an imaginative world, fighting for that seat that Daniel Ricciardo claims is very much his. But out of the present and into the past, we are looking back with Ed. 16 of the 17 French Grand Prix at the Manucourt circuit in northern France were dull and processional affairs. But in 1999... A deluge of rain changed everything. And for Heinz Herald, it was the result he needed to start an unlikely title run. This is the story of how France and Jordan sang in the rain. It's France, 1999. As Formula One returned to the gloomy rural surroundings of Magny Corps, few were expecting anything other than a procession around the tight, dull circuit, which produced little in the way of exciting racing. However, the title fight was already hotting up as Mika Hakkinen led Michael Schumacher by four points heading into the weekend, with Eddie Irvine a further five behind the fin. On Saturday, the rain turned the billet table smooth circuit into a swimming pool, soaking the fans and rewarding drivers who got their laps in early when the conditions were still drivable. Rubens Barry Keller's gamble of going out early paid off as he wrapped up pole position, the second of his Formula 1 career and the first for Stuart Grand Prix. John Lazy rolled back the years with second on the grid, whilst Prost's Olivier Panis qualified a surprising third, giving the Peugeot executives on hand at Manucor something to look forward to on what had previously been a venue of pain and shattered spark plugs for the socially based mark. David Coulthard had qualified best of the big players with fourth out of Heintel Frenton and Schumacher, whilst Hacken and Irvine were only 14th and 17th. Damon Hill, who announced prior to the weekend his retirement from Formula 1 at the end of the year, could only manage 18th on the grid, and subsequently failed to get inside the 107% limit, with Marc Genet, Luca Badur, Pedro De Rosa and Toro Dekaghi also not getting inside the limit. However, the five drivers were allowed to start regardless due to poor weather conditions. Although rain was forecast, the start was dry, with Barrichello holding his lead into Turn 1 after making a good launch from the line. Into Turn 1 with Barrichello leading and Alessi close behind. Tense times for Paul Stewart. Michael Schumacher's on a charge, racing down the outside of Panis at the hairpin and pushing the Frenchman back. With Coulthard immediately passing Panis off line with French and Schumacher following suit on the run down to Adelaide hairpin, turning those pre-race smiles into scowls on the Prost pit wall. Next up on Coulthard's shopping list was a lazy on lap two, the Scott eased by into the Adelaide hairpin, with Barrichello becoming Coulthard's next victim three laps later as he repeated the move on a lazy to take the lead stretching out a small gap to the Brazilian who was unable to counter-attack. Stewart's race got worse when Johnny Herbert pulled into retire on lap 4, whilst Pedro Diniz gave the Sauber pit wall plenty to be concerned about as he retired on lap 6 with a transmission failure. Further back, Hakkinen was a man on the mission, charging into 5th with a gutsy move on Schumacher at the Adelaide hairpin. Lap 9 and Coulthard slowing, alternator failure ending any hopes he had of taking his first win of the year here in France. But it's good news for Stewart as Rubens Barrichello retakes the lead. By lap 14, Hakkinen was up to third after dispatching Frenson, 
are now rapidly gaining on a lazy in second as the clouds continued to darken. Four laps later, Hakkinen got his man, but the French Sicilian made it far from easy as he locked up into the Adelaide hairpin, forcing both cars wide, but luckily for both men without contact. On lap 21, the heavens opened again, sending the teams into panic as they hurriedly scrambled to fit wet tyres. The Ferrari mechanics sent into a state of frenzy as Irvine pitted unannounced, costing the Irishman sacks of time as Giancarlo Vizicala spun at the final chicane. When the leaders did switch to wet, the rain got worse, forcing drivers to tiptoe around the circuit, with Hill's race becoming more of a chore with an off at turn three. Next to go off was a lazy who hit a damp patch on the exit of the Grand Curb, sending him spinning into the gravel trap and ending his good run in the podium positions, much to the Frenchman's disgust. The track officials have seen enough and brought out the safety car. Schumacher appears to have a problem. He's trying to signal to his pit. The Germans lost radio contact. The arrival of the safety car didn't stop cars flying off the road, however, with Jenny, Alex Wurtz and Jack Villeneuve had only just stopped for tyres spinning off into the gravel trap ending their days on lap 25, whilst Alex and Artie joined the growing list of retirement of an engine fed on lap 26. Hill's soggy and miserable afternoon ended on lap 31 as the track began to dry out, and the rain had stopped. After several laps behind the safety car, the pack was unleashed on lap 35 to resume racing, with Hakkinen immediately on Barrichello's gearbox as the green flag dropped. But Hakkinen, in a rare mistake, got too greedy at Adelaide, losing the rear of his McLaren and forcing him to sit and wait as the field roared past. Michael Schumacher, having passed Frenson for second, now has his sights set on first place. With Hakkinen back in eighth, there's only the steward of Barrichello in the way. In just a matter of laps, the man known as the Rainmeister had his presence in his sight. And after a couple of failed attempts, Schumacher sent a gutsy move down the inside of Adelaide, taking the lead off Barrichello, who was now vulnerable to Frenson. Schumacher had initially built up a gap of over 5 seconds on Barrichello and Frenton. However, the gap had rapidly shrunk as an electrical malfunction struck his Ferrari, forcing him to stop for new tyres and a new steering wheel, ending all chance of victory. This put Barrichello back into the lead with 16 laps to go. However, once again, Hackenden closed in on the Brazilian, who was back past Frenton on the rundown to Adelaide Hairpin. And within a few laps, the Finn was back into the lead after a slingshot pass on the Brazilian and the exit for turn 3. Meanwhile, third-place man Frenton had a right-old scare when all he found was neutrals on the exit of Adelaide Hairpin, forcing the German to jump-start the Jordan before finding first gear and getting back under his way. Further back, Panis's hopes of points faded after drifting to the gravel whilst chasing down sixth-place Irvine. With just six laps to go, Akin and Barrichello stopped for a chain to tyres and a splash of fuel, giving Frenton the lead, which the German didn't relinquish hanging on to take his second win of his Formula 1 career and Jordan's second win too, with Hakkinen a fabulous second and Barrichello a gallant third head of the Schumacher brothers, with Ralph leading home his brother and Irvine. If you knew at the time, but this bizarre race would have huge championship ramifications, as in the next round Schumacher's championship tilt ended when he crashed at British Grand Prix, breaking his leg and forcing Irvine to take over as team leader in the German's absence. Meanwhile, Frenson was buoyed by his breakthrough victory and mounted a title challenge as Irvine and Hakkinen continued to drop points in the latter stage of the European season. Sadly for Frenson, his championship bid ended with retirement at the European Grand Prix, whilst Irvine's gallant efforts at ending Ferrari's 20-year hoodoo came up just short as Hakkinen clinched his second title with victory at the Japanese Grand Prix.
may I just say it, that was absolutely cracking. <laughs> Every single word. You did not trip over a single thing. That was glorious. Congratulations. What's Thanks. incredible is that he managed not to trip over a single word, despite the fact that there are typos in the description. Yes. <laughs> Joe, are you not surprised I chose a race from Man Cool? Yeah, I was a little bit surprised because you object to that track on more than a liking-disliking level. It's like you have a moral objection to anything within a 50-mile radius of that track, including any teams that were made there. Like, I remember when I did my Ligier piece a while ago, and they were period for, for during their later period based at Manucor. I was assuming you'd be really excited about a French team, but no, didn't care. They were tainted by the legacy of this track. Um, but if you if you were doing a race at Manucor, I'm surprised and kind of impressed that you didn't go for uh, Schumacher's four-stop win. I, I did think about it, but I also did think about Prost and Mansell 91, when they duel for victory, would have been a contender as well. But I think 99 was probably the best of a real bad, boring bunch of races at Manucor, or Manusnor, as most television viewers called it. And as you still call it to this day, every time we talk about Manicor slash Magni Snore. However, uh, on our usual roller coaster of a timeline, we're going to jump out of the past back into the present because it is now time for news of the week, gents. And I'm going to kick off with what was probably more talked about over this weekend than the actual race itself. Um, and that was all of the abuse that a lot of fans at the Austrian Grand Prix were getting. Um, essentially anyone who wasn't a Max Verstappen slash Red Bull fan. But let's be honest, it was mostly aimed at Lewis Hamilton fans, women and members of the LGBTQ plus community. Not good. Not good at all. It was, I feel like, honestly, that was a bigger subject than the race itself. Um because it seemed to start right at the beginning of the race weekend and continue right to the end of it. Made some people so uncomfortable that they didn't want to come back on the Saturday or Sunday to watch the sprint or the race itself. Um, We heard some examples on Twitter, some stories that people told that were absolutely horrendous. A Lewis Hamilton fan having her dress lifted up by some Dutch Max Verstappen fans. And then, of course, we had the statement from F1 um, and some drivers and some team principals that it was not acceptable and those who were being affected should report it to security or someone, which felt a little bit insufficient. And I don't think we've heard of anyone actually being kicked out or banned or held accountable for their behaviour. I don't know if I've missed anything, but have we actually heard of anyone being held accountable for their behaviour over the weekend? No arrests. Um, apparently, the police chief didn't re- uh, get any reports of arrests, and he said it was a, a job well done. I'm sure plenty of racegoers would uh, beg to differ there. But that, for me, I think was the, the kind of the news of the weekend, to be honest. Um, it completely overshadowed the race itself, and I think cast a, a massive negative light over Austria and the Austrian Grand Prix, because I I did see quite a few stories of people experiencing similar things in previous years and saying, well, what do you expect? It's the Austrian Grand Prix, and it does seem to have a bit of a reputation. It also doesn't help that this was known to everybody before the end of Friday's running, and several stories had already gone viral with supporting evidence on Twitter for everyone to see. So Sky Sports actually decided, unusually for them, it must be said, 
to talk about some of the issues around the weekend, but they only focused on the booing. They didn't actually tell anybody about the stories that we knew to be true and widely reported at that point. So, so as soon as they started saying that, everybody, the Austrians, the Dutch, can rightfully turn around to Sky Sports and say, well, I didn't hear you calling out Verstappen being booed at Silverstone. I didn't hear you calling out the British fans last year cheering as Max Verstappen was sent into the wall outside cops at 51G. So Sky Sports, either ignore this altogether like you normally do, or talk about the realities of what's actually happening, because all you've done is managed to create this ludicrous false equivalence between what happened at Silverstone last weekend and what happened at Austria, which is a completely different kind of problem. And I would just quickly add on to that. We heard reports at Silverstone of not just booing, but there was fan violence in the fans. There was a fight and there was a, it was a bloody one as well with ears being chewed off. And that thread exposed a real, almost, it's been widespread since fans have been allowed to come back. We've had it in Holland. We've had it in Spa, Silverstone, Brazil, America. I mean, the fact that this never gets called out. It annoys me, and it, it for me personally, I will say that it's a sign that lout culture has entered Formula One. If these people cannot behave and decide, you know, let's spaff four hundred quid up the window and then get drunk, start fighting, groping people, why are you coming? What well, we don't want you here. We don't want, you know, the one last element. We're one of the few sports where fans, rival fans, can mix together in the grandstand, have a drink, go home happy. I don't want segregated fans. I don't want this. I don't want these thugs. When are we going to actually have to have a look at it and think, is it going to, is it time that we start putting CCTV cameras around the joint? And is it possible that we're going to have to cut alcohol consumption, which is going to annoy one of F1's premier sponsors, Heineken? It's when, when your own driver criticizes you for booing his rival, you know, you've, you've reached a massive low. And of course, with the extra reports, you have to wonder what on earth are we going to get? What on earth are we going to get for the rest of the season? Yeah, it doesn't look good at all. And I, I, I think I've kind of reached the point where I'm getting kind of tired of statements. You know what I mean? Like Formula One has been kind of statement first. You never really see what they do. You kind of just hear about it. It's the same thing I felt when the Nelson PK stuff was going on. I felt like it was kind of just statements without any any official update on any sanctions that would have taken place for what PK said. And we come here to Austria and I feel like it's the same thing. It's just guys saying, all right, guys, come on. They put up some some banner that is saying, make sure we res- respect each other, guys. I was like, oh, wow, well done, F1. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure they'll all stop now, Formula. You did it, Formula One. Well done. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know. It's, it's, I'm getting tired of the statements. You know, I, the statements are what I'm seeing and the actions aren't being shown. What actions are being taken place to make sure stuff like this doesn't happen again? You know what I mean? I, I hear people saying maybe run a race behind closed doors if the fans can't comply with just being decent human beings. I, I don't know what the, I, I don't know personally what I would do in a situation like this. But I knew I definitely know I'd have to do something. Something has to be done because you can't have an event like this where this many people are are having so many bad experiences with other fan bases. Like yeah, you should be allowed to have fun, and, but this is not nothing about this is fun. Ma- making other people's lives miserable. 
for your own enjoyment is not fun. Groping, all of this, this, the, these slurs being yelled at people. None of this is good. And it's a bad look on the sport. It's a bad look on the teams who, who sell merch to these people that are probably wearing their merch as they do this stuff. Like, it's a bad look for everybody involved. You know what I'm saying? There are people that were abused this week and they'll probably never go back to a Formula One race again, much less one in Austria. I mean, this has lasting effects on not just you as a sport, but the, the, the victims. This is more than just a sporting issue, if you understand what I'm saying. This is, this is an issue that affects people every, in their everyday lives, much less just Formula One. So I don't, I don't even know if the situation is being taken as seriously as I would like, but Formula One need to really step up and just realize that less statements and more actions. And if you are doing actions, let people know. Don't be doing, don't be changing things behind the scenes and not letting your own fan base know that a safer environment is being created. That's all I have to say. No, I couldn't agree more. In turn, you've made plenty of extremely good points there. And it almost feels like maybe F1 need to maybe look to something like the Premier League for some inspiration here, because obviously loud culture has been very much present in football for a long time. And there are things in place that allow them to identify who fans are if they've been, you know, shouting things at players or throwing things at players or at other fans, etc. And maybe they need to look to the Premier League for some inspiration here and there needs to be accountability. I appreciate that it's hard in a Formula One environment where, you know, there's so many people that are in situations like general admission, they're not in set seats and etc. But something needs to be done because like you said, this isn't just a Formula One issue. This is a very human issue and Formula One needs to be accountable for what happens at its events 100%. So here's hoping we do see some actual action because that would be nice, a nice change, wouldn't it? Action rather than just words. But we'll we'll carry on with news of the week. In turn, what is your news item of the week? My news item of the week is one that I brought up many, many, many episodes ago. Many, many episodes ago, I talked about Herta getting the testing role with McLaren. And now he's finally actually tested the car. He tested the 2022, not the 2022, 2021 McLaren this weekend. Well, not even this weekend. It's a couple of days ago. Yesterday, even in Portimao, he got his he got his F1 test. I'm pretty sure it was a three day test. The first two days were him. The third day is Will Stevens because Will Stevens is their sim driver. And again, man, when it comes to Hertha, I really don't like the animosity. He's re- I don't know because this is because I'm a Hertha fan, you know. Like he's getting a lot of flack from some of these McLaren fans that either rep Ricardo or rep Ward and think that this is some there's some some evil scheme to to get Hertha in the second McLaren seat. I think they're looking way too deep into it. I think it's obvious that Zach Brown has stated publicly that he supports Andretti coming into Formula One. And it's in Andretti's best interest if they are to come into Formula One to make sure that Colton, if he really is their guy, has a super license and these tests will get him there eventually. So I think this is good development. I'd, I'm... I, of all the people that are rumored for this McLaren seat, I feel like Hertha's probably the least likely to get it. I genuinely feel like all of this is just an agreement between Andretti and McLaren to get Hertha some seat time, especially since the Sauber deal fell through. They're probably not looking over there anymore. You need to get help 
You know what I mean? If you don't have a Formula One car, the only way you're going to get your driver to test on is if you ask another team. They asked McLaren. McLaren said, yes, now Herta's testing an F1 car. He's going to get his super license. And when Andretti's ready to join the sport, Herta will already have a super license and will be ready to drive using the experience that he's gained from these tests. So I'm very happy that Herta has done his test. It seems as though it went very well. McLaren are impressed and he's clearly getting used to the car according to the interviews i've read so yeah this is a very good development in the story of andretti joining formula one i agree i very much agree with this hypothesis um the zach brown andretti hypothesis and it's nice to see herta in an f1 car and i hope that there's a bright career ahead of him because he's a talented young guy now mr spagnoli what is your news item of the week Far from confirmation, but this comes from an informal source I have within Formula One themselves, who posted something on Instagram, a provisional calendar for the 2023 Formula One season. Pretty unsurprising to see that Le Castellet France was absent, but also absent was the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa. There have been question marks about this venue for a few years, not least after the non-race in 2021. Um, The changes to the circuit have been made predominantly to incorporate the return of uh, high-speed bike racing, not necessarily open wheel. It's funny, you know, Spa's a very popular venue in so many other series. You've got the 24-hour event, which is at the end of this month. Um, touring cars go there all the time, but it looks like, as as it has done many times in the past, Spa-Francorchamps, one of the favourites of the Formula 1 community and the drivers, will no longer be on the calendar in a couple of years' time. How does this make everyone feel? Yes, great. I don't care. I kind of don't care. I don't I lie to you. I must be the I, I only mean, person in the world that doesn't care about Spa. Like, I mean, there hasn't been one good Belgian Grand Prix in the entire hybrid era, in my opinion. Well, Not one. They've all been mid. Every single one of them. 2014 was pretty good. For me, personally, I don't want to lose Spa because it is a driver's favourite and they all love going there. But I will say Spa have not helped themselves. There's very little public transport around, which is what most racetracks are now required to have. There's very little in the way of hotels, very little way of accommodation. There's also through the fact that, you know, fans have not been refunded for what happened last year. And also last year's race was seen as a massive embarrassment for Formula One. So I think Spa didn't help itself. It is a massive shame to, to lose it. I will just quickly add before we go on to my news item of the week is that I don't think this is entirely the end for Spa. I think, you know, if I'm looking at races that could drop off the calendar in the coming years, I'd say Baku looks increasingly in danger because of the fact that with the Russian-Ukraine crisis, many of the people who were Formula 1 fans who wanted to go to a second race would go to Baku, now Carl come. And the attendance at the Azerbaijan Grand Prix was very disappointing, to say the least. And in a time when F1 races are selling out year in, sorry, race weekend in, race weekend out, you kind of wonder, do we need to go to Baku constantly? It's done its job. It's put as by John on the map. Well, I personally quite like the Baku race. I'd be quite sad to see it go, to be honest. But while we're with you, Mr. Spencer, news item of the week, sir. Last week, everyone was anticipating that Red Bull and Porsche would finally end their sorry saga and actually sign a deal. We got nothing. And it turns out there may be a reason why. There was a large consortium from Japan who were acts at the Red Bull ring. Honda are not ruling out a full F1 return in 2026. The company's president and CEO was in attendance at last weekend's uh, Austrian Grand Prix, 
and they are they are thinking about rejoining. So that picture that I captured of uh, Yamamoto-san discussing with Marco, there may be a few more of them. This horse has not bolted yet. Well, looks like Red Bull's future is all looking a little bit up in the air. But we are going to do what we do best on this podcast now, and that is jumping from the present back into the past with classic teams of F1 lore from Joe Spagnoli. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Despite what Twitter's most radical fan bases will tell you, Individual drivers are rarely the instigators of great progress in Formula One. Team principals, entrepreneurs and maverick designers are usually those who alter the course of F1 history. And in recent memory, no one has changed the aerodynamics game like Adrian Newey. His career didn't start at the high-flying Williams, but a little Oxfordshire outfit bearing the title sponsorship of Leighton House. Real estate companies aren't exactly typical F1 partners, but after sponsoring future Ferrari driver Ivan Capelli in the Japanese Formula 2 championship, Leighton House owner Akira Akagi found himself supporting a full Formula 1 team come 1987. That team was a phoenix of the former March Engineering, who'd been out of F1 since 1982, albeit now painted in the classic Leighton House Cyan. The 1987 season was a bit of a non-starter, though. The car started as an F3000 machine with a bigger fuel tank, there was only one of them entered, and the team itself began the year with just 17 members. Nonetheless, their graduate Capelli got a rookie point around the twists of Monaco, and for 1988, Leighton House March found him not only a partner in Brazilian Maurizio Gugelmin, but V8 Judd engines that anticipated F1's incoming turbo ban. However, it wasn't these that changed the team's history, but a young incoming designer by the name of Adrian Newey. The March 881 was the only non-turbo car to truly lead a race in 1988, when Capelli managed to overtake the legendary Alain Prost at Suzuka. Sadly, the naturally aspirated engine was soon retaken, although that may have more to do with Capelli accidentally hitting the kill switch in his excitement. 
It didn't win a race in 1988, but Newey's ultra-slim chassis and aero packaging was copied by everyone soon after, and his first ever car made him an engineering superstar more or less overnight. 22 total points for Leighton House March, team personnel that had grown six times over, and two podiums for Capelli in Belgium and Portugal informed massive hype for F1's non-turbo era starting in 1989. It didn't pay off. Mauricio Guzelman brought one of the 1988 marches to his home Grand Prix, although he and Ivan Capelli could expect new cars in the near future. A home podium for Google Mean at Jakara Pagua in the 88 car was the team's only points finish in a year beset by reliability issues stemming from Judd's problematic new engine and Newey's aggressively thin gearbox casing. They used the same baseline for 1990 though, although Akagi had now bought the March team, recognising Leighton House itself as a manufacturer. The new Leighton House CG901 was unveiled as a disaster. Forget not scoring points, this car couldn't even qualify at two races. Akagi fired Adrian Newey before the season's halfway point, but not before the Englishman had made massive changes ahead of the French Grand Prix. An incredible qualifying had both cars starting in the top 10, but even with a B-spec car, Leighton House didn't have the pace to challenge. They did, however, have a cunning plan, to complete the race on one set of tyres. So, once leader after leader reacted to each other and switched their Goodyear rubber, the two Leighton houses were leading home a 1-2. Ivan Capelli led over half of the French Grand Prix, and as late as three-quarter distance, the Italian was setting not just fastest laps, but a lap record on old tyres. And yet, it wasn't quite enough. Gugelman is stopping right in front of me! Mauricio Gugelman is stopping! He stopped at the entrance to the pit and is out of the French Grand Prix! Nanini goes up into third place, Mansell goes up into fourth place, Senna is now fifth, and Mauricio Gugelman is getting out of his car. Yes, and that terminal mechanical and sort of steam and stuff coming to the rear of the car, so engine or gearbox, something fairly major, that broke the one foot jet. And then Prost Ferrari got by the remaining Leighton House with just four laps to go. And there are the two leaders. Prost, very close to the still. And Prost will be challenging as they go into the double right hand. And I'm sure he's going to go for the inside. He has. And Prost has just done it. Alan Prost has gone through. He'll make no mistake now. It was nonetheless a minor miracle, as Capelli's engine had almost given up too. This podium would never be matched again, however, despite Leighton House retaining both drivers yet again for 1991 and all-new V10 engines from Ilmore, who'd later become Mercedes. With Adrian Newey gone, new designers Chris Murphy and Gustav Brunner created a car that just couldn't finish races, and aside from one sixth place for Capelli in Hungary, couldn't score points whenever it did. Behind the scenes, it was even worse. Akira Akagi was implicated in a massive financial scandal which resulted in his arrest, and his wonder kid Capelli being replaced by Carl Venlinger. Ahead of 1992, Leighton House as a constructor was finished. What remained was sold to a consortium and renamed back to March, but even they could only limp on for one more year. I promised producer Roy Field several weeks ago that we would get a sequel to the March piece I did a long time ago about Adrian Newey and how his career started at a team that was initially a phoenix of March. Kel surprise, he's not here to hear it live with the rest of us. But yes, Leighton House, I've actually seen Adrian Newey talking about uh, Leighton House's his projects there. The fact that some of the aerodynamic lessons he'd learnt designing that first ever car of his, he still uses today. He still designs his cars on paper, unlike seemingly any other designer. 
And I suppose the question I'd have to any of you who's familiar with Leighton House's circumstances or the piece I just did, this team, do you think they could have been, could have been, had the finances not dried up, had the Leighton House owner not been found guilty of fraud, could they have been the original Red Bull and risen to the top? No. I'm just going to be brutally honest about it. No. Because Nui would have been snapped up by a bigger team. And I think also, regardless of what drivers they would have signed, I mean, bearing in mind, they had Carl Vandenger in 1992, shortly after Lane House left. They would have been snapped up by a Williams or a Benetton or a McLaren at the time. So, no, I don't think Lane House would have made it big. Maybe if they'd been bought out by someone bigger, maybe a, one of the big businessmen of the time, i.e. a Bernard Tappy, but no, come on. No, I don't even think the loyalist of March fans would say they were going to become a Red Bull. Well, that's incredibly depressing and makes everything I've just done feel completely pointless, Ed. So thank you very, very much. But the final point I'll make on this before we move on is that I mentioned the V10 Ilmore engines that they were running in 1991. Now, the first, the first ever Ilmore F1 engines, they weren't particularly great, but it's worth uh, reminding you that Ilmore is what then became Mercedes high-performance powertrains what was until very recently the dominant engine force in Formula One, certainly in the last decade. Yeah, the humble beginnings of the most dominant engine manufacturer of the hybrid era by a long way. Again, kind of began with the Leighton House team. It's just a shame that, much like March a year later, they just didn't last very long. And now, while Joe screams into a pillow, we're going to go to everyone's favourite part of the podcast, and that is Plonker of the Week. And I'm going to start this week because, it, it, to be honest, it, it's bigger than Plonker of the Week. It, it deserves a worse word than Plonker. But my Plonker of the Week is Formula One for talking and not doing. Uh, for making a crappy, pointless statement that meant nothing and not actually taking any action to make fans feel safe and welcome at the Austrian Grand Prix. And I will continue to be angry with them until they actually flipping do something. So that's my Plonker of the Week. We're going to go to you, Mr. Spencer. Plonker of the Week. I uh, would say I, I'm i going to have to give it joint again. So half of it would be the fans who rather tarn- rather drag the sport's reputation through the mud again by acting like complete morons. And as we've discussed earlier in this podcast, things need to change thanks to their rather good behaviour. Also, the chief of police as well for saying that he hadn't got any reports. Probably reason the reason why is because it's a private security firm. And you say as a job well done, it's a bit of an insult. So, to these two groups of people who bought the circus well and truly to the Red Bull ring, they are my plonkers of the week. Good point. Well made. Mr. Spagnoli, plonker of the week. I'll bring it back to a driver just so I know we've got at least one. On a weekend where so many people could have slagged off Pierre Gasly for maybe his worst weekend that he's had for Alpha Tauri since that team started in its current guise, I have to give it to Yuki Tsunoda. For the third weekend in a row, he has been absolutely abysmal. And at this weekend, he was abysmal in every session. Off the pace in Q1, he couldn't string one lap together. In the sprint, he managed to fall behind Pierre Gasly, who'd gone backwards into Turn 1 in an accident that was Gasly's fault, admittedly. 
you're falling behind a damaged Alpha Tauri teammate, finishing in 17th, I believe it was. And in the race, he was just nowhere. Granted, you know, the team had a bad car this weekend. I thought personally Alpha Tauri should have been targeting points because this is a track that suits that car more or less perfectly, at least to my understanding of it. But yeah, Sonoda for the third weekend in a row has been one of, if not the worst driver in the field on performance. And he is very lucky that there is no one in the Red Bull Academy ready to take over that mantle. Shots fired by Joe today. Fair point. And lastly, we're coming to you last in turn so that you can close us out with your iconic strapline. But who is your plonker of the week? I have two. One on track, one off track. Off track is the commentator that calls Stroll Artistic. I was like, what? what why? Hold that suspension, by the way. And on track, I'm going to be the opposite of Joe. I'm going to give it to Gasly. Gasly was terrible this weekend. Bro. He was so bad this weekend. No one cared. He, he he turns left into Lewis in the sprint for no reason. Sends himself to Narnia for no reason. Then the race comes and he exceeds track limits. He gets one five-second penalty. Then he hits Vettel at that infamous turn and gives himself another five second penalty like don't get me wrong i i don't expect sonoda to always be on it but you're supposed to be the team leader you're supposed to be the guy that's up there when sonoda has his honkers but you were too busy having honkers of yourself and all of them were self-inflicted all of them the vettel crash was your fault the the first lap of the sprint was your fault it can't be anyone else's fault that you exceed track limits but yours that's three Gasly mistakes this weekend, man. Don't get me wrong. He got screwed in qualifying because Checo should have never been in Q3 to begin with. But my word, Pierre Gasly was worse to me than Sonoda. Gasly was terrible this weekend, bro. He he's and also um Alpine mechanics, cause what the hell, man? Every week, every every weekend with the arm. Every weekend. It's always it's always something. It doesn't matter what. It could be the smallest thing. It could be a whole shutdown. Always something. Why? Can, you you should not be beefing McLaren right now, man. Give me some more time. Y'all should not be beefing McLaren right now, man. With Ricardo showing the worst form of his life and you have two competent drivers, why are you tied with LP? Why are you tied with McLaren right now? You should be leaps and bounds ahead of McLaren. Right? You should not be tied with them. You should have left them in the dust ages ago, man. McLaren have not been quick at all this weekend. Y'all have and y'all just bottle it week after week, man. Ocon retiring in Silverstone. Alonso with the issues this weekend. Alonso in Australia. Alonso in Jeddah. Ocon in Imola. Alonso in Imola. The engine issues in Bahrain. Like, aren't y'all tired of fixing cars? Are you not tired of fixing cars? Come on, man. You're bottling forth for no reason. This cannot continue. Say the line, intern. Say the line. Fix up! <laughs> All three of you, man. Fix up. You heard the man. You heard the man. We'll see. We'll see if they hear you. We'll see if they're paying attention. 
But gents, that is all we have time for this week on the Race Directors podcast. So dear listeners, as per usual, I will ask you to make sure that you are subscribed to us on your favourite podcast platform, wherever it is you choose to listen to us. You can follow us on Twitter at race underscore directors or like us on Facebook at the Race Directors podcast, where we will keep you updated with memes, thoughts, feelings and general shithousery. But thank you very much, gentlemen, for being here. And uh, say goodnight to everyone. Bye. Bye, everybody. Paul Ricard's a great track, and I will die on this hill. <laughs> Sounds like a weird hill to die on, but you, you. I mean, at least he didn't say it was Manny Snow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.